0: Please join me in Nehemiah 9, verses 1 to 3. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and for another quarter. Another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And a couple of things before we get started this morning. Um, I promise you, I'll have you out here by one o'clock so you can see the game. Um, that's number one. Number two, um, we have a town hall meeting next week right after church. Um, when the Panthers win this week, trust the game won't start till four o'clock next week. So we'll be fine. Um, we have a town hall meeting immediately following um, the worship service. And this is a time we talk about some things going on at, at our church, some of the transitions, some um, people you've seen or not seen now. Uh, and um, also, we'll talk about our plans for the future, um, building-wise, and all the other things going on. So, and this is an opportunity for you to ask questions I think we need to come together as a church, be willing to be open and ask questions and share some things with you as leadership um, so that we can move forward in in trust of the Lord. Um, The other thing I want to bring up is the Bible studies. The learning communities, rather, have started up again in the morning. Uh, The men's learning community, I'm helping lead that um, with uh, Phil Prince and Charles McKnight, and we're doing Paul uh, Paul Tripp's book, Broken Down House. And um, that study has not actually begun yet because Amazon took too long to deliver the books. And um, something about weather and the northeast, snow and all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> so that if you're a man and you're in here, please um, do your best to come to that Bible study. We started out strong last time, and it, it's, it's going to get much better as we begin to take our faith and apply it to restoring our personal lives and the world around us. Um, and the women's Bible study, the learning community, is going on um, at the same time on Sunday morning. So it's a family affair. affair. There's stuff for children and their childcare provided. So um, that is 8.45 on Sunday. So uh, please be aware of that and I hope to see you there. So this morning, as we look at Nehemiah 9th chapter, you might have the longest scripture printed out in the history of Christ Central Church. So you should feel privileged. But I would not have done this if I didn't think it was necessary. Um, Necessary for you to get an extraordinary truth from God's word. And so by any means necessary, you have before you the full context for your good and God's glory. And much like the genealogy that we saw in the message Charles preached a couple weeks ago from Matthew, this long dialogue of history is of utter importance to Israelites, and with that, their ability to relate and connect with their God. Last week, God's people gathered to party. This week, as so happens after like our own New Year's celebrations, they come together to repent and make resolutions. And what reads, if you were to read chapter 9, and we're going to read a good bit of it, I'm going to do a lot of the reading today. What reads here like a seesaw relationship between God and his people is the stuff behind their, their and our ability and motivation to go to God and confess our sins with each other before God. What you see here in Nehemiah is the blueprint if you will, for our own corporate confession and assurance that we do every week in our worship service here at Christ Center Church. But I believe for for, for many of us, uh, the confession of sins and repentance has lost its way and lost its right stimulus. Yet, confession of our sins and assurance that we're forgiven is one of the greatest privileges given to God For his, given from God for his people. We must become people who confess their sins and live in and receive God's forgiveness. And while it is easy, When we read the law like we did reading the Ten Commandments this morning, like these people, Nehemiah, did. When we confess our sins, you know, we slip into making confessing of our sins and ceremonies of confession like we see here in Nehemiah about our lack of commitment primarily. But this passage as we will see is urging against everything in us to not condemn ourselves or even focus primarily on our mistakes see we should not repent because of our lack of commitment only but because of the biblical story and truth of God's commitment you know why you can repent because of the God because the God of the Bible is committed Because the God of the the Bible is committed to his holy purposes, number one, committed to his holy people, secondly, and finally committed to his holy plan. It's the stuff of confession. The other night I was leaving a church meeting and it came up that that Christ Central Church could, uh, you know, with its potential move, if we move from this place, become more eclectic with more nationalities and more people groups. And I was like, wait a minute. When I signed up to do this thing 10 years ago, I signed up to be ebony and ivory, right? Side by side on my keyboard, oh, Lord, why don't we? And maybe ebony, ivory, and brown. But I did not expect God to change the very key of our ministry. I said it out loud. I ain't that kind of pastor. All different flags and languages, I ain't and of that. And Christine Morgan says, well, here's some good news about feeling like you can or don't want to do or be that kind of pastor. It's not about you. You know, and she had this smile, you know, Christine. But get this, it was not a I got you smile. She's a lot more mature than that, than I would be, because I would have a got you smile. But it was a good news smile, Right? Aren't you happy, Pastor Brown, that this is about God and his purpose and not you and your fickle, broken stuff? And that speaks to the first thing about God and our ability to repent and confess our sins and turn to him. Our God is committed primarily to his purposes of being worshipped and being good. Look with me at verse 1 through 5. Jacob already read those. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins, iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worship uh, the Lord their God. They weren't going to the football game on the stairs uh, on the stairs of the levites stood jeshua benai kadmiel Shabaniah, bunai Sherebiah, benai and shenaina Sh- whatever i want to say shenene but that ain't right shenani And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kodmiel, all those people, and said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. The start and basis of their confession was not about their ability to express woe for their sins. But woe, right? Woe and wow for God, as in woe and wow, look at who you are and how we have sinned against that incredibleness, right? They are called to be more impressed with God and his purposes than themselves and their sin. They are confessing because they stood against these holy God purposes to be worshiped and to be God, to be I am, who he is like, how he wants to be out loud and get and expect and anticipate complete and utter exhaustive, right? Unrelenting, constant, consistent affirmation, honor, recognition, thanks, amen, worship, From everything that moves and lives and has breath and anything and everything that all that has breath has made. God is committed to being worshipped and he is on a mission with holy method to get that out of all people, especially his people. When I say worship, the Bible is talking about joyful. Willful obedience to and being to God to do everything with a God respective and approval. It is as they read the book of the law and repented worship is loving God the way He has expected and asked. It means maxing out your human potential and ability to be for God all and how and why He has called and created you to be an object, a mirror, a, a vehicle, a vessel, a, a freely responsive amplifier to God's glory. In and all and everything. And God is committed and was committed to, to that from the very beginning when He created heavens and the earth and people, and His commitment to be known and thus worshiped as God and creator has not changed since creation. In fact, look with me at verse six through eight. They say, You are the Lord, you alone. This is worship going on, right? You, you have made heaven. They're standing in sackcloth and ashes. They're repenting. The, the heaven and the, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the hosts of heaven worship you. You are the Lord. The God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the, of the Chaldeans and, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made him the covenant. Made him the covenant to give his offspring the land of Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the per- Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Ger- And You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. It might not be completely evident in this reading, but by bringing up the creation stuff, the Bible is saying: not only is God holy, purposes to be worshipped, but simply to be good. To be good and lay that goodness onto his creation in all things and all people, that God has been committed from the beginning to take his goodness, which is the expression of his holy character and glory he has, and visiting and touching all who and all that he has made with it, with the main focus being good to his people. And what is good? God alone and what he alone desires and expresses in the Bible for our lives. So guess what? Sin is a rejection of God's being good to us and on us and in this world. Our world is so broken and messed up that it's hard for us to see. I look around and wonder and and accept and recognize that among God's holy purposes— Is not condemnation and the human view of judgment, but goodness. Which may mean when badness comes in in conflict with with our version of goodness, or our version of goodness comes in contact with God's, comes in contact with God's committed goodness, it may create conflict. One thing we should recognize in seeing and owning our sin is that God's goodness is not always our goodness, but his goodness is bigger and better and holier and stronger. And he will not let his commitment to be good to us in this world fail, even if that means things going badly for you. He is God, a good God, and God will be good no matter what. So it's simple. Let God be good to you. Let go of your own good, your commitment to being good by all by yourself and for yourself and for your own. It will not let me let me make this clear. It will not outlast or be better for you in the long run than a wholly committed God's good for you and the world. And that is what Nehemiah is saying here is that we repent and we are sorry for living outside of God's good and thus outside. Of his holy purposes. But their sin was deeper than just that as we read this passage. Because the people confessing their sins here were, were what I call peculiar and holy. Not only what I call it, this is what the Bible calls them peculiar and holy people. This is who's confessing their sins. Meaning this. That God was committed to them in a peculiar and special way. Committed to blessing them. This is what it meant to be a peculiar and holy people. Blessing them, get this, even though they, as a people, would fail to worship him and would at critical times forget his goodness. A peculiar people, sure, but an even more peculiar God who would be committed to people like that. We would not be off to suggest as we read this passage from our human view that God likes bad relationships or a good relationship with bad people. He is committed to blessing folks, beginning as this passage does with Abraham and going through their present situation. He's committed to blessing folks who fail and forget him okay hang with me as we read god's commitment it's going to take a little bit of a little while but i want you to see how he blesses people who fail and forget him so jacob didn't read it but i'm going to read it does god bless is god committed to blessing people like you and me who fail him fail to worship and forget his goodness, look with me at verse 7. Hang in there, hang in there. Let it fill up your thoughts about God's commitment towards you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abram. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gerishite. You have kept your promise to bless, that is, for you are righteous. Then it says, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants in all the people's land. For you knew they, were at, they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the Red Sea before them. So they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers in a depth and, and, and a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, Lord, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and, and commandments. And you made them to know your holy Sabbath and commanded them And commanded them commandments and statutes and law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven. And and, and heaven for their hunger and brought water uh, for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God, ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, And said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in a way did not depart from them. The the way by which they should go, you gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sahan, king of Hishbon, and, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You, you multiplied their children as the stars of the heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess, possess. Excuse me. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you, Lord, you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and, and you gave. Them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities in a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed, their, and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. and They committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to the law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey. Your commandments, but sin against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them and turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give air. Therefore you gave them into the land of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God, now, therefore, God the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant steadfast with us. Not, not, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our priests, our prophets, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments, and you warn, and your warnings that you gave them even in their own kingdom, and your great goodness that you gave them in a large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. It's a lot of scripture. Can you say dysfunctional relationship? And all the way, what do we see? We saw God committed to blessing his people. And that that basically, he summarized the whole Bible up to this point. You just read the whole Bible, basically. And that meant what? The dysfunctionality you saw meant that God blessed them with the knowledge of him. That's what it means to bless a people. That God, it meant that God in his, you know gave the knowledge of him in his veiled holiness, right? God made his holiness veiled, but naked, if you will, before his people through his word and his miracles, the pillars of cloud and fire, the answering of their cries, and in freeing them from slavery and now exile, and giving them all they needed to survive and even more, right? He gave them the fill and delight and stuff of earthly and worldly, tangible spoils to make them glad and happy. Let me say this with all respect. God made holy love to and with his people over and over, exposing the blessing of his holiness, his goodness, his divine grace. And the story says that there were a number of times when his people saw and looked and interacted with God's best for them. They saw who God was and did not worship and remember his goodness. They did the equivalent of telling your committed lover that you have seen Had and want better. Thank you, but no thank you. The God of heaven, the holy God, put himself out there for his people to get glory and honor and be good to them and bless them and they failed to remember and honor how good he was. If I were God's buddy, and I'm not, I would have to sit down with dude. God ain't no dude. I'm just using it to kind of personify something. But I would tell God to stop getting played by those people. If I look at Christianity, I know some of y'all and some of y'all know me. I would have to tell God to leave y'all alone. But this is not about God getting played. This was and is how God plays it, right? His people might fail and forget, but this is not about their failure or God's failure or forgetfulness, but his commitment to remember and bless his people according to his promise. He was and is committed to blessing his people powerfully out of their sin predicaments, which meant exposing and revealing his saving, rescuing holiness again and again, and putting himself in his stuff and his holy stuff and blessing out there for and to them again and again and again. One thing for sure, God is committed to blessing you and me, people like you and me who failed to worship him like he should, and who forget just how good he is and has been to us in the past. Look how we act. Look at how we live. We get up every morning expecting everything to be all right, and when something go wrong, oh my God! Oh Jesus, you don't love me. We get bitter and mad. Look at us. Every day around between six and eight, most of us we expected to eat. I even get mad. Kelly, where's the food? Looking grumpy. Look how we act. When we turn the key to the ignition and most of y'all in there have a car, you expect it to start. You expect that dial to go up to, to midway or even full. Look at us. Look at you getting up in the morning with somebody beside you who love you, who shouldn't even love you no more. Look at how we live. Think about the things we concentrate our money and energy on day in and day out like the story we see in Nehemiah. If we were to take your story and make a short movie out of it, it would look just like chapter 9. And if you claim to be Jesus's, God is and has been committed to blessing you with this great and awesome goodness, to letting you into the intimate place reserved for his children. He has an eye for you, right? God will always bless you if you're his. He will never ever withhold his goodness, the goodness and blessing of his parenting he has for you. According to this history, we see in the scripture, regardless of the circumstances, if you are blessed to be his child, he is committed to blessing you to have his Holy Spirit come and actually live in your heart with his word piercing your heart, with his community of faith, with the protection in this world, with his promises to never leave or forsake you. And though we forget and fail to obey and follow his ways, this relationship with God crazily so is about his commitment to love a crazy and sometimes confused, falling, failing, and very forgetful people like you and me. That is what the gospel is. That is what the story is all about. A crazy love story. But before we put God in the same category, as some of y'all possess a self-centered inner of the world, gotta have you baby or will kill or die to have you know my love. Let me tell you, God's love is way worse than that. Just look at what God is committed to after his holy purpose and holy people. A holy plan to save his people and have them and then be the savior of his people. Look at how he deals with having his people failing to worship him and remember his goodness while still having a commitment to his holy purpose of being worshipped and good. Look with me at verse 17 real quick. We're going to run through these. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return, to return them to the slavery you delivered them from, God. Okay. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Then verse 19, you and your great mercies just after made a calf and said, hey, here's the, here's the God who delivered us from Egypt, this golden thing we made. They look pretty bad, don't they? We ain't no better. We do the same thing. When things don't go right, Lord, it was so much better when we weren't saved. You know, we say stupid things. We think stupid things. But look at verse 19. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness, but you kept leading them, basically, is saying. Then in verse 27 and 28, this is what it says. You gave them up to the hand of their enemies who made them suffer, and in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, "...and you heard from heaven, and according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they, they, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies." Finally, verse 31. Many years you bore with them and wanted, warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet you would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of their lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You know what the regular response to people who you bless and then they forget and fail to be grateful and even stab you in the back with that very blessing you gave them, you bless them out, right? You don't bless them, you bless them out, right? Well, I don't want to completely skip over the fact that part of the blessing was that God disciplined them and punished them like a good parent, allowing them to experience the grounding and spankings of slavery, exile, and wandering in a desert. But I want to focus on this. He didn't keep them punished until they were condemned, He was committed to what? To saving them by his grace and his mercy, delivering them from their enemies and sin, but giving them unearned favor and not giving them what their disobedience deserved. This is what it means for God to save a sometimes faithless, failing, sinning, and forgetful and despising of God's goodness people. To actually be merciful and forgiving. Some of the stuff you and I do have done and will do in the light of what God has shown and shared to you. You know, I used to have this thing, and I still wonder, if I saw a pillar of cloud in the day and one a fire by night just appearing there, I would be obedient. Don't fool yourself. God has been good enough and blessed you enough for you to, to be described as doing things that are unthinkable and unforgivable in the light of his goodness. Especially some of you who claim to be his people. Oh, Jesus, saved me. I, I should have been condemned to hell. I you know, blah, 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 blah. And you still sin? You still forget? You, man, let me tell you, evangelical Christians are some of the most ungrateful people in the world. And they always moping and miserable when things don't go right. They want it to work out. They're omnicompetent. Why is it? And it is sort of ungratefulness to God. You know, God should have let some of us Christian brats have our way and then let our sin in this world we have turned on him to have its way with us. Some of us should be dead right now. Sometimes I wake up and I think, the way I treated God this morning, why am I living? I'm scared. Some of you should not be sitting in here in your right mind. That thing you went through, that should have taken you to the other side. Right, right? You, you, you should be more addicted and more trapped than you are right now. Some of us should be in jail or friendless. Some of the things you did should have made you a fool and kept you foolish and lost and in the dark or disabled you with emotional and mental and spiritual damage. Man, your kids should not even know what a Bible is, much less claim your God after what some of your families were involved in and did and suffered from. All the abuse and mental illness and substance abuse and bad body and mom and daddy overworking and self-image stuff and you and I inherited that stuff and handled it poorly and sinfully But God, by his grace and mercy, committed to saving you from our sins, which is justifying, sanctifying, glorifying us, to free people like me and you and enjoy him and his world and life again and again and over and over and deeper and stronger and finally and forever. But remember, confession of sin and assurance of forgiveness is about God's commitment and not ours. We confess and seek forgiveness because God is so committed to being worshipped and good and blessing. But they appear to close the deal with their promise and commitment themselves. Appear to look at the final verse here, verse thirty-eight. This way, right? What's going on? I got my plug acting up or something. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And basically they're saying, we're not going to mess up again. Well, these people in Nehemiah gathered together, repent, had the right idea and right sentiment as they make a promise, a commitment to God here. And I believe it's heartfelt, right? Repentance should lead you. Oh, God, I love you. I won't do it again, right? Should lead you to promise to make a goal and to have a burning desire to no longer to live in sin anymore. Why? Because through the ministry of the word and the blessing of God visiting through the word by his Holy Spirit, like these folks in Nehemiah, exposed to God's character, it kind of overcomes you with gratitude. That's how it works in changing us. By signing and making a public vow or promise to God, though, is very dangerous. Because it meant suffering and taking the sin penalty if it's not kept. What are these people thinking? What are we thinking? Look, we promise we won't do it again. Uh-huh. We've done that, and I think our faith gets weak because we think that's the thing that holds our commitment with God together. I'm sorry, Lord, and then, you know, three days later, I'm sorry, Lord, and then two days later, I'm sorry I did it twice, Lord. You know, it's, it, we think that's it, and we're like, man, this Christianity isn't true. That's because your confession is based on your vow. And your confession is not based on your vow ultimately. Now, is it right to say, Lord, I'm sorry, I won't sin anymore? Yes, it is. Because that is the motivation of our faith. We want to please our God. And that is a changing of the heart. Every, you know, it's like winding something that's gonna take a long the rest of your life to wind. Wind it a little bit more. But that is not the thing that holds your faith together. Because if it were, you would stop confessing your sins. You would stop being sorry for what you did. You would turn to this apathetic kind of Christianity. Well, I've done it so many times, I'm not even going to try anymore. The reason we become like that is because we think that that final, that that name we put on a list is the final thing that's going to hold this thing together, and it is not. So they ratified by the princes, priests, and prophets of the day. And with those names, it meant that they could not would enforce and reinforce and stand as examples of, of all the people they led. Well, we know that that does not happen, okay? Israel's history goes bad again. Now, according to their credit history that we read about in verses 7 through 35, they have defaulted on God's goodness and mercy. So Why? And how could and would God accept or even encourage them to seek forbearance and sin forgiveness, a grace extension, if you will, based on their resolve? And and let me tell you, it is right and proper again to confess your sins and resolve the sin no more. Where is the hope in that? Think about your own sin and promise history and credit rating. Why would God give you grace? When I bought my first car, a red Isuzu pickup truck. That thing was nice, too. I had them wheels on it. It was lowered. It was nice. Back in the day when that wasn't country, that was good. But I couldn't get the loan. I couldn't get the money, grace, mercy I needed at the interest rate that wouldn't condemn and crush me because I had no credit history. But then I remember later in life when I did have a credit history. But it wasn't too good. In both cases, I needed someone with a good credit and good history to co-sign, to underwrite my promise, that my history said that I would default on, and that underwriter co-signer would be obligated to the bank blessing us with a loan and be obligated, linked in legal relationship with me, committed to me in my debts. When we look at the history of Israel, there was only one who could co-sign and underwrite their salvation, their forgiveness, and that ironically was God himself. You see, when they signed and sealed that promise to God, it was their prophets, priests, and kings' names. But what God did is that he made sure that they have one more name on the vow that made all the difference. Jesus. God come as one of them, prophet, priest, and king of Israel, and God in the flesh made the difference. And boy, it brings a whole new meaning to the word underwritten, co-signed, and guaranteed. The prophet, priest, and king Jesus signed his name with blood below theirs when he came as one of their descendants, and now our lord and king, that he would pay for all they defaulted on and now confess, that he would be their righteousness when they forgot and failed, that he would be the holder and the inheritance of the blessing for them that they rejected. God committed Jesus, his son, for the plan of salvation to be the guarantor and underwriter in his blood for all that we confess and all that we promise to do no more. Now think about all that. Think about what you would say again to a friend in a bad so-called love relationship. To have this man, Or to have this woman, you're humiliating yourself. You're just being used. You are a slave of love for them. You're losing your dignity for them. You you don't love. They don't love you like you love them. I tried all of that. You are probably crazy enough to die for them. You sound like you need to be committed with that kind of foolish love. God was so committed getting what he wanted out of us, that in Jesus, he did humiliate himself. He did use himself. He did become a slave to our sin. He did lose his dignity. He died to express and accomplish his commitment to his purposes, his people, and his plan. And in that commitment, that calls us and commits us to God to be sorrowful for our sin to have confidence, to seek mercy and forgiveness and to seek and work to change, to sin no more, knowing that you stand in the grace of Jesus Christ so that no matter what, because of God's commitment, that he's committed to not and will never leave or forsake us when we, his people in Christ, are burdened and struggling and fighting and confessing over and over and admitting and turning away to him in our brokenness and sin. I don't care. How many payments you have missed in worshiping God, or how much sin, debt, or depth you have burdened yourself, or how bad it is, or how long it has been in going, you know, going to God, or how impossible it seems, or, or how disappointing your ability to change is. Confess repent, lay it out there, let it go. God is a committed to God people, to people like you and me, the message and revelation of who God is and what he did in Jesus Christ is here and true and a story of a committed God. I watched the ain't even in my notes. I watched a movie the other day. It's kind of a movie about addiction. I'm not going to tell you the name of the movie because I don't think you should watch it. I'm not sure everybody should watch it. Put it that way. I just remember this guy, he was doing some really bad things. It was funny. He said, I love this, and I love this, and I love that. And the three things he mentioned he loved were all very sinful things. (laughs) And then he says, and I love my church and my God. (laughs) And every time he would go through this cycle, right? Doing the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, thing, and then going to the priest for confession. And I looked at this, I'm like, this is stupid because there's no life change for him. And I think there's some reality in the fact that we need to look at our lives and see whether really the Lord, whether things are really moving if we're not taking advantage of or not really being sorrowful for our sin. But one thing hit me there. That I think Protestants especially, can miss that on. Never, ever, if you claim to be Christ, get tired of confessing your sins. Never, ever. When that guy left that confessional booth, he was absolved. So much so he went and did it again, right? Now, we got we to work on some of that. But you need to go to the confessional booth before the Lord and possibly with others. We need to learn from our Catholic brothers and sisters. You Never stop believing that God forgives sins. And when you walk out from confessing your sins, you are forgiven because of his commitment to you, not your ability and commitment to make it right. He is your priest, your high priest. And he never is clothed for business. You can always go in the booth of righteousness before him and confess. People of God, I don't care how many cycles you're in, how many times you've done it, how bad it is. He's committed to his goodness, his worship, and his love for you and me.